A couple of years back, there was a series of memes. Memes, meme culture makes me laugh. It's interesting, right? But there used to be a series of memes that you'd put two pictures up. One picture would be your, maybe your middle school picture or you had a bad season, you looking pretty rough. And then to the right, you'd put this beautiful picture of yourself, how great you are, all that you've been through and you've come through. And to the left, the caption would be, if you don't love me at my worst... Then the right picture would say, then you don't deserve to love me at my best, right? Or be around me at my best. And that kind of feeds our pride a lot, right? Someone didn't like me back then. They don't deserve to be around me now. And that shouldn't be our mindset when it comes to us as believers. But this is very much our attitude that we need to have when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And our relationship with the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10, it, the, it's the Lord's Prayer. It's how Jesus teaches us to pray. And one of the ways we start the Lord's Prayer is saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, have we been praying this prayer, Jesus Christ, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. Oftentimes we can pray that for our government, we pray for that in Washington, D.C., we pray for that for others, but are we praying this prayer for our own lives, for our homes, for our decision making? Again, at the end of age, there's only going to be two types of people. There'll be those that say, God, my whole life is about your will being done. We know that God wills that no one would perish. So those that are saying, God, I want your will to be done in my life, they'll be a part of the family of God. The rest of mankind will be those that were all about their own will. This is my will. This is my desire. I am the king of my castle, right? Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 before we dive in here. 2 Timothy 2. I love uh, being able to read scripture, not to just give us more knowledge, not so that we could win next time we're on Bible Jeopardy and stuff like that, but I like reading scripture so we can ask ourselves, Lord, is this me today? Lord, how am I doing with this today? 2 Timothy chapter 2, again, the context here, Paul, he's basically on his deathbed. He knows he's about to be put to death soon, and he's writing a letter to his son in the faith. So again, Imagine you parents here. You know you're going to die soon. What would you write to your sons and daughters in those last moments, that last season? So here he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We start in verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, this is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Again, much conviction in the scripture. Also a lot of grace and hope here. That the whole, all of life comes to, hey, are we denying ourselves? Is it no longer Zach's who's living, Zach's will being done, Zach's desires happening. But now is it Jesus Christ living in me and through me? That as I go about my day, as I come into a room, as I have people over the house, I'm saying, God, not what do I will, but Lord, what is your will here? What's your desire here? As we step into church, not, hey, what do I want? What do I want them to do for me? But Lord, what do you want me to do for others as I'm coming in here? Are we enduring? Are we enduring sin and temptation? Are we enduring in this race, in this wrestling, this battle that we're in? 
Or are we constantly just giving up? Giving into sin, giving into temptation. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Again, the truth here, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we deny Jesus and his lordship over our lives, he will deny us when we meet him face to face in heaven. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. You have nothing to do with me. We had no relationship. Your whole life was about your will, your desires, and your kingdom being established. And then verse 13, again, there's hope for us when we fail and when we mess up. That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Again, maybe this morning, maybe yesterday, you messed up, had a rough night, fell back into sin. I encourage you, get back up. That's the beautiful thing about grace. Grace begs us to get back up, get right with the Lord, and keep running forward. No, no room for self-pity. Our lives, is it about our kingdom or is it about the kingdom of God being established in our homes and in our personal lives? Right? For the men here, is it, oh, this is my castle, right? And everybody else in the house is just your lowly servants, right? Lowly peasants, especially Sunday afternoon. You just lay there watching football and you got one kid fanning you, the other kid giving you grapes, right? Whatever the, whatever the case may be. Or is our life today, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, may or today, our, what we're doing the rest of Sunday, Lord, may your will happen. So we go back now to Revelation. We'll start in Revelation 19 so we can get the full context here of what's happened. We've read through this portion of Scripture. We've gone through it. But when will Jesus' thousand-year reign begin in Revelation 20? It all starts with Jesus wiping away and doing away with all of the evil and what's wrong in this world. When does he get rid of that? Revelation 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We've talked about Revelation 19, right? A tale of two feasts. One feast, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, we'll be able to eat together with him. The second feast, if you're not a part of Jesus Christ, you are what's on the menu of the feast, right? These birds of the air will come and eat the flesh of all the enemies of Jesus Christ. All the people that gather together with the Antichrist, with the false prophet, with all the kings of this earth, they'll be joined together to fight Jesus Christ. He'll destroy them just with his voice, just with his words, and then the birds of the air will come and eat them up. So how does Jesus establish his thousand-year reign? First, he does away with the evil kings of this earth and everyone that rises against him. He does away with the Antichrist, with the false prophet. Then we continue in verse 20. 
There wouldn't be a chapter break when John's writing this letter, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Again, this reveals to us the power of our God. It's not God himself that he has to get off the throne in heaven to come down on earth. It's not Jesus that he has to take a break from interceding for us and now he comes down to have to deal with Satan. It's Larry the angel, right? It's Bob the angel. Hey, you, we need you. You you got a five-minute break? Hey, here's the keys. Here's the chain. Why don't you go ahead and grab Satan, tie him up, and throw him into the abyss? It's so important for us to realize Satan is not God's equal. Satan, he's not Jesus' brother. God has complete power over Satan and can stop him at any moment. Yet God in his all-knowing power is able to use Satan to serve his needs. His perfect plan. It's not the angel Gabriel. It's not the archangel Michael. It's not even Jesus who brings down Satan. It's an unnamed angel who's able to lay hold of him, bind him, and cast him out into the abyss. Verse 2 makes it clear. He makes it crystal clear for us. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen Satan as the dragon. But here he gives us the full answer, right? The full gambit. The dragon, that serpent of old, Who is the devil and Satan, right? If you had any worry, any concern, is it really the devil? Yes, right? The devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old. He's grabbed, the chain is put around him, and he's cast into the bottomless pit. In the book of Jude, in verse 6, only one chapter in Jude, it tells us that there are angels that did not keep their proper domain, and they left their own abode. And to these angels, it says, God has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Perhaps God has lent some of these everlasting chains to this angel to grab Satan, bind him up, and then he's thrown, not yet into hell, he's thrown into the abyss that we've seen a few times throughout the book of Revelation. This bottomless pit, many people believe it might be at the center of the earth or the center of a sphere because any way out, you'd go up. There'd be no bottom there. And now he's shut up and he's sealed here. This is speaking of the seal, just like in Rome, they put a seal upon the tomb of Jesus Christ saying, okay, nobody could enter, nobody could leave. Just as the Holy Spirit seals us as believers So Satan will be sealed, and there's no breaking God's seal here. He will be bound and in chains for these thousand years until the things have to happen where he must be released for a little while. And just as our God has power to bind demons, he has power to bind Satan. And we have to realize it's not our power and it's not our words. There are some churches, some ministries out there that tell you, hey, you have the power to bind Satan. You yourself can do it. However, here Revelation makes it clear it's only an act of God, an act of the heavens that can bind Satan. It's not you and me. And it's the same in Revelation as it to our lives today. We have to go and pray to the Lord to help us here. 
Donald Barnhouse, he says, this shows that there's no man who simply binds Satan with his prayer. This is a work done on a divine initiative. One very important detail is to notice that the conquest of Satan and his powers does not come by any human effort. We need to go to our advocate. We need to go to Jesus Christ. We need to go to God. However, the Bible makes it clear for us in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. James tells us, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again there, we're not forced to obey Satan. Whenever we think we are, again, it's such a lie. Sometimes, lots of times I feel bad for God, and there's sometimes I even feel bad for the devil. Why? They get blamed for everything. They get blamed for everything. Oh, Satan just made me do it. I had no power. That's a lie. It was your decision. You chose to do that. James 4 makes it clear. We need to submit to God. What does that mean? Not my will, not my desires. God, your will and your desires. We submit to him as our authority. God, doesn't matter what I feel like right now. What matters is what does your word have to say? So we submit to God. Then we resist the devil. Just resist him. Just resist the temptation. And then he'll flee from you. And what a promise here in James chapter 4, verse 8, that as we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. What a promise there. If we draw near to God, He will respond and He will draw near to us. And as we draw near to Him, what's going to happen? We're going to be cleansing our hands. We're going to be purifying our hearts. Instead of being double-minded, we're going to be single-minded, have a mindset, a heavenly mindset here. Again, we need to learn to resist Satan. And the way we resist Satan is by submitting to God and the will of God and the word of God. It's important to note by this time in Revelation 20, everything is happening in order as we're used to, right? In our Western mindset, everything happens in chronological order. We're no longer in this parentheses, but everything we've seen in Revelation 19, the beast being captured, the false prophet being captured, them being thrown alive into the lake of fire. Then in Revelation 19, 21, all the kings of the earth, all of their armies, the great men, the, the smaller men, right? They're all killed with the sword and their birds are filled with their flesh. Then in the, again, same order here. Then Revelation 20, Satan being grabbed hold of and being thrown into the abyss. All of these things happen in order. We are to take this literally. The next thing that we need to take literally is what we see in verse 2, that he is bound for a thousand years. And it's interesting because a thousand years is going to appear in verse 2. It's going to appear in verse 3. It's going to appear in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, and in verse 7. The word thousand years is going to appear six times in the first seven verses of Revelation 20. It's as if God's trying to tell us, hey, pay attention. A thousand years is going to happen here, right? And it's almost like Sesame Street, right? The, the word of the day is thousand years, right? And it's said over and over and over and over again. And God, he's trying to make a note that we would realize he's trying to tell us something. That Satan is going to be bound up for a thousand years. And what's the reason that he's going to be bound up for a thousand years? So that he would deceive the nations no more. That word deceive, it's to cause to stray. To lead aside from the rigid way. 
to get off course and to deviate from the correct path. It's to roam, it's to wander. That's when we're deceived from the truth. And here, God, he's giving us insight into who Satan truly is. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He doesn't deceive us with just a flat-out lie. He deceives us with a lie that sounds good, tastes good, and looks good. That's why it's so important that we take hold of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why Ephesians 6.17 tells us that this book that we have in front of us is the Word of God. It's the truth of God. And you guys know, what's the only way to fight a deceiver and a liar? What do you need? You need the truth. That's why more than ever before, as believers, we need to bind our definitions to those found in Scripture. Not what the world says, not what the culture says. Hey, what does the Word of God have to say on this? Satan, he's a liar and he's a deceiver. We know Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. We know that truth. Yet temptation comes and we think, ah, oh, this is going to be sweet. This is going to be okay. This relationship, I know they're not saved, but somehow I'll get them saved and it'll all work out, right? I know this is a sinful relationship, but God, maybe you can save it. Maybe you could do something with it. We buy into these lies. A song that we've been singing recently, it, the name of it is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And one stanza goes like this. It says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word can bring down the power of the devil. And the word is liar. Liar. Realizing that he's a liar. When temptation comes, we have to re realize this is a lie. And we need to hold on to the truth of God's word. That's why James 4 gives us that order. Submit to God and then resist the devil. Submit to the truth of God. This is what God's word has to say. Submit to this and resist the devil. And we have power to overcome him. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, the Holy Spirit living inside of us is greater than the enemy that owns this world and the prince of the power of the air of this world. We have to hold on to the truth of God's word. One commentator says, The truth is ever against him. Therefore, falsehood is his particular recourse and instrument. But naked falsehood is only repulsive. What we know to be a lie cannot command our respect. Untruth can only gain credence and acceptance by being so disguised as to appear to be the truth. Falsehood can have no power over us until we are led to believe and conclude that it is the truth. And this deluding of men, getting them to accept and follow lies and false hopes under the persuasion that they are accepting and following the truth, is the great work and business of Satan in every age. Again, he tries to get us to believe the lie. Man, if I, if I go cheat on my wife and sleep with this girl, everything's going to be better. I'm going to feel better. If I gossip about this person and talk garbage about them, everything, I'll feel better about myself. Things are going to be better. I give in to this pornography. I'll, I'll finally feel better. I've had a long day. I deserve this. Again, it's a lie of Satan to f get us to believe this just lie. It's his deception. You need to hold on to the truth. 
And the great question is, hey, are people being deceived into believing lies today? Oh, yeah. yeah, right? <laughs> totally. I've got to tell you, the 9 a.m., they were more ready with the, yeah, they are, right? <laughs> then us, the, again, our world is believing in lies. Lies of sex, right? Lies of gender, lies of marriage, so many lies out there. Lies of abortion, so many lies out there. That somehow killing something is going to make any situation better. It's not going to work out. So many lies that our world is believing into today. That's why it's so foolish that some Christians think that we're living in the millennium right now. There's some Christians that think right now this is Christ's kingdom. What a letdown, right? What a letdown. If this is Christ's kingdom, what a letdown. We could turn quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And you'll see Peter, like James, he gives us a very similar formula for dealing with our enemy, dealing with Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Again, Satan, he cannot be roaring, walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour if he's bound up in chains, sealed up in the abyss for a thousand years. Those two things can't be happening at the same time. A little bit of knowledge here for us. There's three ideas when it comes to the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. And we have to realize and remember this is not a saved, not saved type of question. We're not going to get to... Right, We're not going to get to heaven and Jesus Christ is going to ask us, hey, are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial? Hey, I'm amillennial. Sorry, you got to go downstairs now. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. And we have to be careful as believers. It, it does. We get a kick. Sometimes our pride, we get a high ride when we start arguing with other believers about doctrine. At the end of the day, it's still pride. It's still wrong. Someone's being led astray. Hey, give them the truth. But here's the three ideas. There's amillennial, which literally means no millennium. They believe that all of this is spiritualized and symbolic like much of the book of Revelation. They don't believe in a little rapture and they believe that after Jesus' second coming, he just will establish a new heaven and a new earth. That somehow we're living in the millennium right now. Again, what a letdown for them. Then there's post-millennial. They believe that Jesus will come back after the millennium, after the thousand years. In fact, they believe the thousand years does not have to be taken literally. That things are going to get better and better because of the gospel. That we as Christians, we're going to continue to fix the world. We're going to continue to overcome governments. There'll be Christian kings, Christian presidents, Christians all over the world. And that after the world is completely fixed and his kingdom is here, Jesus will finally come to rule and reign and defeat sin and death. That the world is somehow going to progressively get better. And we could just take a look at the last 10 years, right? Is our world getting progressively better? Are things getting better? No way, right? It's interesting because during World War I and World War II, this idea of a post-millennial reign of Jesus Christ almost went extinct. Because it's hard to think the world's getting better and better when you see all the atrocities of war and everything that happened in Europe and in Germany during World War II. Finally, there's premillennialism, where we believe that Jesus, he will return and take his bride, 
And then after a thousand years, we who are with him in heaven, we come down. He has the war that we read about in Revelation 19. And then he establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. That as Jesus says in Matthew 24, the world is simply going to get worse and worse and worse. Until it's like the days of Lot, the days of Noah, and then Jesus will come and save his bride and then come and fix this world and rule and reign. A couple scriptures on this, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment. And righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Again, so many promises to David. So many promises throughout the minor and major prophets. That David and his kingdom will continue to reign for forevermore. In Psalm 72, verse 11, it tells us, Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. Again, there will be a literal thousand-year reign where Jesus, he's not only king of kings and lord of lords of our heart, or of heaven and of the universe, but the literal king of kings of earth itself. There are over 400 verses and more than 20 different passages within the Old Testament that deal with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over planet Earth. There's countless more scriptures in the New Testament when Jesus speaks of this very same thing. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Let us rejoice that scripture is so clear and so explicit upon the great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the world. We believe that the Jews will be converted and they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all nations shall walk in the light of the glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory which shall have its center there shall spread all over the world, covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness, and delight. And for this, we look with joyful expectation. Again, it's important for us in our worship, not only do we worship God for how great He is, how amazing He is, not only do we worship God for what He's done in our life, but we also need to be worshiping God for what He still has yet to do. There's still so much more that God has for us. And when we're living in this thousand-year reign, this life is going to seem like a dream. Again, 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, compared to a 1,000 years, this life is going to be like a dream. Man, do you remember? It's like foggy. You remember when we used to go to church, right? You remember when we used to go to Calvary Chapel, Miami? It's going to be like a dream. You remember when we used to have the struggle with sin? You remember the craziness of our world, the craziness of the government? It's going to be like a dream. That's why in this life we need to be having Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in our life and in our heart so that during this thousand years, then for the rest of eternity, it's going to be no different for us personally because he was already the ruler. He was already the King of kings and the Lord of lords of my life and my home personally. Revelation 20 verse 4, John, next scene happens. He says, I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. 
Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the first thing John sees in verse 4 are these thrones, people sitting on them, and judgment being committed to them. In Revelation 11, verse 16, we saw 24 elders that sat before God on their thrones, and they would fall down and worship the Lord their God. This represents the 12 tribes of Israel, also represents the 12 disciples. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, he calls out the church of Corinth because they're arguing with each other, they're fighting with each other, they're suing each other, taking each other to court. And then in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. That one day we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. That as the world's population continues to grow, hey, you got to go to work here. You got to go rule and reign here. Hey, you're in job, your job is Westchester. Hey, you got to go back to Kendall, right? Hey, you got to take care of this or that. One day we will rule and reign with him. This is also speaking specifically about the tribulation saints that will get their resurrection bodies at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ so that they can rule and reign with Christ, with us, and with the other believers. You see here, there's a great divide in verse 4 and 5, and it's not something happening in order. First resurrection, second resurrection, third resurrection, no. It's two people groups. There's those that are a part of the first resurrection and those that are part of the second resurrection. That's it. There's only two choices here. The first resurrection and the second. We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this speaks of Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits of the first resurrection. He is our trailblazer. He's our leader. And as we follow him in death, we get to follow him in life and in resurrection life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Again, he's our trailblazer. He leads, and as he died in resurrection, he's the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. It's important for us to know, Lazarus wasn't the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. 
the young boy with Elisha and Elijah, right, that got resurrected from the dead, he wasn't the first room. These people, right, the good news is that they resurrected from the dead. What was the bad news? They had to die again, right? That's the bad news. They had to go through the process all over again. For Jesus, he resurrected to never die again. That's why he's the first fruit of the resurrection. That's why it's so true to us. If we are born twice, we'll only die once. But if we're only born once, then we have to die twice. Die once going through this physical life into the spiritual and immortal life. And then die again for all of eternity in hell. But if we are in Jesus Christ, if we've been born again, the old man dead and gone, and now Jesus Christ living in us and through us and instead of us, we won't have to taste of the second death. We won't have to taste of death for all of eternity. Romans 6.5 puts it this way. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Are you dying to yourself? Are you dying to yourself? Your will, your desires, what you want, me, 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 is that put to death? And we're saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? How can I put Christ on high? How can I be that lampstand that's just putting Jesus Christ on display? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, it gives us an order here. It tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So Jesus, he descends, and then it says, The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So there's three points within the first resurrection. Who's a part of the first resurrection? Jesus Christ, first and foremost, right? He's the first fruits of the first resurrection. Who's the second group, right? It's first the dead in Christ first. Jesus comes for the rapture. First, it's the dead in Christ. They're given their resurrected bodies. And then we who are alive and remain, then we are given our resurrected bodies. So believers past and then believers present at the rapture are given their resurrected bodies. And then finally, it'll be the tribulation saints. After all that they've gone through, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign, they're given their resurrected bodies. That's the first group, first resurrection. Who's a part of the second resurrection? It's all unbelievers who did not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Everyone else will only receive their resurrection bodies until the thousand years were finished, just like we read in Revelation 20. They don't receive their resurrection bodies until the beginning of the great white judgment of Jesus Christ, where then they're judged and then thrown into hell for all of eternity. So again, it's a lot better to be a part of the first resurrection, right? Then we get to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. In John chapter 5, this is what Jesus says. John 5 verse 28 Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Again, there's resurrection of life, and then there's resurrection of condemnation. We resurrect to have life and that abundantly for all of eternity. 
And then there are those that will resurrect to have condemnation for all of eternity. The truth is we are all eternal beings. Every single human, eternal being. We have a spirit. The difference is where will we spend the rest of eternity? And we make those decisions today. We RSVP for our home for all of eternity. We choose that place. We pick that place today. That's why in John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, right? Do we believe this? That if we believe in Jesus Christ, we put our faith in him, we place our faith, our trust in him, he died instead of me. We live for him. He lived for us. He died for us. Now we live for him. We will die one day, but then we'll live forevermore. Unless the rapture comes first. That's my hope. That's my goal. That's my plan, right? But then we who die, we're going to live for all of eternity. Now we go to verse 6. Right, John, he gives us a commentary here between the first resurrection and second resurrection. He says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Again, so much of this, if we are Christians, this is our mindset already. The New Testament tells us that we are a kingdom of kings and priests to God our Savior. So if this is our mindset, if we're already living, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Even as time progresses, we'll have different bodies, we'll be in different places, different atmospheres, right? different stratospheres. But same king and ruler and reigner within our lives. Reigner, I don't know if that's the right word or not, right? Let's jump over to Isaiah chapter 2. And we'll look at a couple of scriptures here and then close. Because we'll be able to be priests of God and of Christ. And we're going to be able to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. That's why Jesus in the parables, he says, hey, I gave to this man ten talents. Hey, you did well. You multiplied the ten talents. Come into my kingdom. Here's ten cities for you to rule over. Hey, you were faithful with five talents. Hey, here's five cities for you to rule over. But what happens to the man that was unfaithful with the one talent was given to him? It says, bind him, grab him, and throw him into the place where there's gnashing of teeth. How are we with the Lord? Are we being faithful? First and foremost to the gift of salvation, right? And then with whatever he's given to us. Ruling with him for a thousand years. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, it tells us, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You see, our world is craving a utopia, right? Our world for years has been saying, hey, we need world peace. How can we get world peace? The UN will bring us world peace, right? Not going to happen, right? Our world is crying out for world peace. Our world is crying out to solve hunger, to solve people not being able to drink water. Our world is trying to solve all these problems in their own utopian society. However, there's only one king that can bring this to fruition. The problem is they have beef with the king, right? They have a problem with the king. They want the perfect utopian society, but they think we can do it in and of ourselves because they believe we're good. I hate to break it to you. We're not good. To our core, we're evil, right? 
You go to kids' ministry, you see all those kids, to their core, they are evil. <laughs> to their core. Why is that? Because their parents, to their core, they are evil, right? I got three of them in there. We're all evil to our core. We're all evil to our core. Only Jesus can change us. And only Jesus, when he's ruling over this world, he's going to bring this world peace into fruition. So what does the thousand year, what does the millennial reign of Jesus Christ look like? It tells us here, there's going to be no more war. For all those men that are soldiers here, right? Men and women who are first responders, police officers, you're going to be out of a job. What a blessing, right? What a blessing. Instead of having weapons, we're going to beat those weapons and we're going to use it and we're going to forge them into farming tools, right? And it's just going to be about feeding the world. How powerful King Jesus is. We can go now to Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah 9 prophesying Jesus one day being born. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7 speaks of both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Again, does our world not cry out for justice, for fair judgment? That will only happen in and through Jesus Christ. Same within our lives. The only way we can really be fair and not show preferential treatment is when we're completely about our Father's business. Because in our own flesh, even as believers, right, we know with our kids we're prone to just whatever they say goes. That other kid, that other kid is the bad kid. My kid, they would never do anything wrong, right? The teacher, the teacher must be wrong. My kids are perfect, right? We go through that. It's only when we're in the will of God and of Jesus Christ that we're able to have true judgment and true justice. Then we go to Isaiah chapter 11. What does this thousand year reign look like? There's no more war. Now there's perfect judgment, perfect justice. Jesus, his, his government, and there's world peace that will not end. Then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, we start off in verse 4. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf with the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Those of you that wanted pet wolves and leopards and lions, hey, just wait, right? Just wait till the thousand-year reign. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. That's for all the anxious moms here today, right? 
They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered by the sea. Again, Jesus will bring so much peace and order, not just to war, not just to government, but to the animal kingdom. We'll be brought back to the days of the Garden of Eden where Adam wasn't fearful of the animals attacking him or eating him. He was walking amongst them, naming them in perfect peace. Though all of mankind or all of the animal kingdom will go back to being vegetarians here. That was tough for us today, but hey, sooner or later, right, it'll be okay. It'll be right. Then in Zechariah chapter 8, I'll just read this one. Zechariah 8, verse 4 and 5, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. What does a thousand year reign of Christ look like? Kids being able to play in the streets and parents not freaking out about it again, right? Again, is our world looking better? Look at 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Talk to my parents. I tasted a little bit of that, but hey, go out and play. Just be back by dinner time, right? I hope none of your parents tell that to your kids anymore, right? Because the world is insane today. We have tracking devices on our kids, right? Give them the phone and you put the tracking device on the phone. You know where they're at at all times. But when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign, everything will be perfect. Everything will be perfect. Again, our world cries out for a utopia. Our world cries out to be the perfect neighbor towards one another, solve world peace, solve world hunger, solve all of these problems. But there's only one king that can bring it to pass, and that's Jesus Christ. Do we want the utopia without the king? It won't work that way. It will not work that way. That's why we need to cry out to the Lord and say, God, be the king of my life today. Jesus Christ, will you rule and reign over my life, over my home, over my job, my position, all of my responsibilities? Jesus, will you rule and reign over them? Again, so so how do we apply this? I think the first way is to cry out for and to long for heaven. To cry out for and long for this thousand-year reign where there's, right, peace. There's no more war. There's no more death and carnage. There's no more adultery there's no more orphanages there's no more cancer right so many difficulties so many things that break our heart it'll be gone and we'll get to rule and reign with Jesus Christ I think the other way we apply this is we have to ask ourselves is my life all about my will is my true prayer God my will be done my kingdom come on earth make it like that in heaven Lord is that our true prayer Is it, I'm going to rule and reign in my house. I'm going to rule and reign in my home. I'm going to rule and reign. It's all about me, me, me. Or is my life truly about God? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, it's not about what I will. Jesus, it's about what you will in my life. Who's ruling your life? Is it Jesus and his word? Or is it you and your flesh and your feelings? That's why when Jesus is already our true king, when he's already, it's his will and not our will. When all of our life is about his kingdom, there's not going to be too much change in our lives as time progresses. He's going to continue to be king. He's going to continue to be about his kingdom. And he's going to continue to be about his will. So let's usher that into our homes, into our lives today. 
All of mankind, again, separated into two, into two. Those who were after God's will in their life and those who were after their own will in their life. That's what all of humanity is going to be split up, split up into. Those that wanted God's will, God wills that no one would perish, right? Those that apprehend that and want that, God, your will be done in my life. Lord, your will be done in my home. Your will be done in my kids. Versus those who are all about their own will, their own feelings, their own hunger, their own desires. And I pray as believers today, more than ever, we would be about our Father's business. So hey, worship team, if you can come up. Pastors, if you could get ready. And hey, as we spend some time in worship, as we have time, if you need prayer, to come up front and pray with the pastors. Maybe that serpent, the devil of old, he got you again, right? You bit into that deception, you bit into that lure, and you realize, ah, what a deception. I bit into it, I fell into the temptation, I chose the temptation, and now I realize this doesn't feel good, this feels terrible. Now I realize this isn't bringing me life or peace, this is bringing me, like Romans says, the wages of sin is death. I encourage you, come up and cry out to the Lord. Pray with one of the pastors. His grace begs us, hey, come back up, come to me, get cleaned, get washed, get renewed, and be about your father's business.